Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 20, where God begins giving Israel what is known as the law. We learn that the law can be divided into two sections, the law of God and the law of Moses. The law of God is for all peoples at all times. It consists of the moral laws, the universal moral laws known as the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses, we learned, is for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel. It consists of civil laws for governing Hebrew society and ceremonial laws which deal with religious life. So to be clear, the law of Moses is not for the church. It is not for you and I. And I mentioned that we're going to be camping in Exodus chapter 20 for a while because the law is one of the most important subjects for every believer to grasp in order to understand the big picture of the Bible. In the coming weeks, we're going to take a look at each of the Ten Commandments in detail, but today I wanted to spend some more time exploring the general subject of the law and our current relationship to it as Christians. And to do that, we're going to be in the New Testament, if you want to begin flipping there in your Bibles, in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 7. Paul is the guru, the expert, the master on the subject of the law and the believer, the law and the Christian. And if you want to know more about why that is, you can check out Paul's life story in the book of Acts. And so with that, let's jump into Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, Paul begins by saying, listen, you guys that I'm writing to, you know how the law works. He says that the law has dominion. The law rules over a man as long as he lives. So as long as a man is alive, he's under the law of God. It is the standard by which God will judge the life of every man. Paul says, if you're breathing, you're under the law. And now Paul begins to use an analogy based on marriage in verse two. He says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. In Jewish and Christian culture, while there are a few exceptions, it is understood that marriage really is till death do us part. And Paul leverages this as an analogy, pointing out that the only way a woman can be freed from being bound to her husband is if he dies. Because if he dies, her legal obligation to him also dies. So write this down. It's going to be our first fill-in, and here's the connection. This is where Paul is going. As long as we are alive, we are legally bound to the law. That's our starting point in today's exploration of the law. As long as we are alive, we are legally bound to the law. We are under the law. Paul goes on in verse 4, and he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, Listen, the law wasn't going to die. The law wasn't going to die, so 
we had to die. And when Jesus died in our place, it had the same effect on our spiritual legal status as the death of a spouse has on their surviving spouse's legal status. If we're dead, we have no more legal obligations to the law. This is why you've never seen a corpse dragged into a courtroom, propped up in the docket, and charged with a crime. Because if you're dead, you are dead to the law. But here's the amazing part. Not only did Jesus die in our place, freeing us from our obligations to the law, he also rose from the dead in our place. And what that means is that while we have died to our obligations to the law, We have also been raised back to life along with Jesus. So we're dead to the law and yet we're alive through Jesus. So make a note of this. We died with Jesus, so we are now free from the law. We died with Jesus and so we're now free from the law. Now don't miss this. Paul tells us why Jesus has done this for us. Continuing with the analogy of marriage, Paul writes, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So Paul says, the reason that Jesus died for us is so that we could be, in effect, married to him, so that he could have a bride, the church. And guess what? If we're married to the Lord, we'll bear fruit to God. It'll just happen. We will live fruitful lives that bless the Lord because being married to the Lord is just another way of talking about abiding in the Lord, which Jesus talks about in John chapter 15. And he tells us, listen, if we're abiding in him, we will bear much fruit, not because we'll try to, but because it's just what happens when you're walking and living closely with the Lord. So we were freed from our old relationship to the law so that we could enter into a new relationship with Jesus that would cause us to bear fruit to God and be a blessing to the Lord. So write this down. We have been freed from the law so that we can be married to Jesus. Then Paul continues in verse five, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, did you catch that? Paul says that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. He says that the law made us want to sin more. It made us even more guilty before God. How so? Well, as we've talked about before, there's just something about our human nature that as soon as something is forbidden, suddenly becomes a whole lot more interesting and attractive, doesn't it? That's just the way we're wired. Isn't it true that the most luscious, desirable grass in the world is always the grass that has the sign on it that says, keep off the grass? I mean, I wouldn't have even noticed the grass unless you would put that sign there. But now that I've seen that sign, I just pretty much want to roll in the grass like a dog. It looks wonderful. And all I can think about is how I'm not supposed to do that. Or how about the lakeside hotel that had a constant problem with people fishing off their balconies? One day a friend came to visit the manager and the manager told him, listen, I don't know what to do. We've tried everything and the situation just keeps getting worse. We cannot get people to stop fishing into the lake off their balconies. And the friend said, let me take a look around. And the friend took a look around and he came back and he said, listen, I know exactly what you need to do. The manager said, what? He said, you got to take down all the signs that say no fishing off the balcony. And as soon as they did that, guess what? The problem was solved. Nobody even thought to do it. 
Just having the option there, telling them that they shouldn't, made their flesh want to do it. Why would God give us the law if it caused us to sin even more? Well, Paul's going to explain that when we get down to verse 7. But for now, verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to the church and every believer who has since lived. And the Holy Spirit gives us power to live for God. That's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. In the new covenant, we have the power of the Holy Spirit rather than just the power of our flesh, which is no power at all. The law revealed that when we try to will ourselves to righteousness and goodness, we fail. Jesus died on the cross to make us righteous, and he gave us his spirit to give us the power to actually live as his disciples, the power to actually obey God. Is serving God exhausting to you? Is serving God discouraging? Because if it is, you're almost certainly trying to serve God in the flesh. What Paul calls here the oldness of the letter. God's call is to serve him instead in the newness of the spirit. So what's the difference? Well, the law is about trying to will oneself toward obedience. The spirit is about trying to surrender oneself toward obedience. The law is about trying to control every aspect of your life. The spirit is about surrendering control of your life. And we'll talk about that some more. Write this down for now, though. Instead of striving to fulfill the law, we are to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Instead of striving to fulfill the law, we are to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, as an aside, I just want to get your mind going on this and suggest to you that what Paul writes about here in Romans, in Romans 7 and Romans 8, affirms very strongly the doctrine of eternal security, the idea that you cannot lose your salvation. I say that based upon Paul's verbiage and the imagery that he chooses. He says, we're dead to the law. When a person is dead and buried, they do not dig up their bones and try to charge them with fresh crimes because there's no way they can commit new crimes if they're dead. So from a legal perspective, those who belong to Jesus cannot be charged with new sins because we are dead to the law. We are not under the law. Therefore, we cannot legally be convicted by the law. Another way to view it is through the lens of the legal term double jeopardy. That's the law which states one cannot be convicted twice for the same offense. The Bible tells us that from God's perspective, violating his law is the offense that causes us eternal separation from him. Paul tells us that we've already been charged. We've already been found guilty. We've already been sentenced to death and we've already been killed for that crime. When did that happen? When Jesus took our place on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, we cannot be charged with the same crime again. Somebody has already been punished for our sins. I don't see how you can reconcile Paul's writing here in Romans with the idea that we can lose our salvation. If we have it, we have it forever. If we don't have it, we never had it. 
And if you're still not sure about this, just wait until we read from verse 31 of Romans 8 through to the end of the chapter. I think you'll find it very convincing. Let's pick it up again in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Do you remember what we learned last week? The law is to prepare us for the gospel by laying bare our hopeless sin condition, exposing our hopeless sin condition. Paul told us that the law, the law was a tutor designed to teach us that we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God and we all need a savior. And so by revealing that even when we know what we should do, we don't do it, the law made it even more obvious that we need a savior. You know, the law is the mirror and the mirror is not responsible for it reflects, for what it reflects but it's useful for showing us who we really are. The mirror is not responsible for what it reflects, but it's useful for showing us who we really are. So write this down. The law is a mirror that reveals the truth of who I am. You take a look at yourself in light of the law, and you go, oh man, that's pretty ugly. You don't say that's a bad mirror. You say, man, I gotta do something about what I'm seeing in this mirror. And that's what the law does. Continuing on, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So what scholars generally believe that Paul is speaking about here is the age of accountability. And here's where that idea comes from. I don't have time to do a whole study on this right now. I'm just going to give you the Cliff's Notes version. The Bible teaches that we're all responsible for the amount of revelation that we receive, the amount of revelation of God that we receive. For example, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul describes how every person has received the evidences of God of their internal conscience and creation all around them. Those are revelations of God, the conscience and creation. And so from this concept, we derive the idea of an age of accountability, an age under which people are not yet accountable to the law of God because they don't yet have the mental and spiritual faculties to grasp it. So some scholars suggest that Paul here is talking about the fact that he was free from the law as a child but was then once a young man brought into the deception that he could find a path to life through trying to live under the law. And he says, listen, as soon as I started trying to live up to the law, all it ended up doing was killing me spiritually. And it would have killed me in every sense because I was guilty under the law. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was me. The law is good. I'm not. Verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul is just reinforcing here, the problem is not the law. The law is perfect and good. The problem is me. 
The problem is me in light of the law. When I'm confronted with this perfect law, all that comes out of me is sin and failure, glaringly and obviously. The law reveals the ugly truth about me by making it impossible for me to hide my sinfulness. You know, I love Paul for, for many, many reasons, but, but one of the reasons I love him the most is what he writes next here in Romans chapter seven. It is the most relatable description of our struggle with sin that I've ever read. And I'm deeply encouraged that the man writing it is, by all accounts, the greatest pastor who has ever lived. Paul describes the conflict between the Christian spirit and flesh perfectly. And I hope this encourages you because if you love the Lord, you're gonna see yourself in Paul's words here. Verse 15, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. He says, I know what I should do and I wanna do it, but I don't. Instead, I do the things that I know I shouldn't do and that I don't actually want to do. Sounds like the experience most of us have with diet and exercise, right? I know I should work out and eat a salad, but, but what if I ate ice cream and watched TV instead? Paul says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. I was determined, I, I, I know what I had to do, I know what I should do, I had a plan to do it, and yet I just didn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And, and just when I thought I was doing it, I crashed and burned and failed. Couldn't keep it up. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. He says, my conscience condemns me when I do the things I should not do. And this proves that what the law is saying is good and right and true. My own conscience condemns me. Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I know that in me, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, I've got a new spirit. I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. But I'm stuck in this sinful, fleshly body that just does not want to get with the program and serve God the way my spirit does. Relatable? Verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law at work in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. I'm stuck in a body that's in conflict with my spirit. My spirit loves the law of God, but my flesh rebels against it. And that leads Paul to exclaim, as I have many times myself, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you relate? Is there any hope for us? Paul gives us the answer. I thank God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you underline through Jesus Christ our Lord? Our hope is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's taking care of our sin and our failures on the cross. And when we arrive in his presence, we will be given new bodies that will finally be in total agreement, total unity, total harmony with the spirit of God within us. We will one day receive new bodies that desire to serve God as much as our spirits do. And that is what we'll do. We will serve the Lord and live for him in eternity in a state of total rest and peace. Think about this. I can't wait for this. Just think about what the the peace is going to be like when there's no conflict within us anymore. No conflict between our desires and our actions and our thoughts and our actions and our will and our behavior. All of it is going to be in total unity, loving and serving God the way that we deeply desire to in our spirits right now. I can't wait for that can't wait. But what do we do in the meantime in this life? Paul says, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, you got to understand this is the deal in this life. We have a spirit that desires to please God and a body that desires to please itself. And so we're in this state of conflict. Well, that's great, Jeff. So am I just supposed to go through life feeling ashamed, guilty, and condemned as I inevitably sin and fail to do the things that my spirit wants to do, the things I know I should do? Is that the situation? Paul answers going on into Romans chapter eight. He answers with one of the most precious verses in all of scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. For those who belong to Jesus, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's a statement of fact. Despite our sin and our failures, we are not condemned. How is that possible? Because God dealt with the problem of our sinful flesh through Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and on the cross, he became our sinful flesh Even though he personally had never sinned, he took our sin upon himself in his flesh so that God could judge and deal with our flesh justly as needed to be done. And so I want to make sure we understand something simple but profound. Paul tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is making an emphatic declaration of reality for the believer. This is a statement on reality. He's saying it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. This is the reality of the situation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you feel condemnation as a believer, you need to understand two things. Number one, it's not real. It's not real. And number two, it's not from God. Now the Holy Spirit will convict us from sin 
that we might repent, that we might restore relationships, that we might make restitution as best we can and be freed from that sin. But the Holy Spirit will never condemn us for our sin. If you feel condemned, you feel ashamed, you feel like like you want to stay away from church and from the Lord, you don't do that. You go to the Lord in prayer. Ideally, you take communion and you pray, Lord, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I'm not condemned, but have been adopted into your family as your child. Thank you that while my sin is great, the work of Jesus on the cross is greater. When the enemy tries to discourage you, tries to condemn you, you use it as a reminder to thank the Lord for the cross, to thank the Lord for your salvation, to thank the Lord for your place in his family, to thank the Lord for giving you the righteousness of Jesus. Let every attempt to condemn you by the enemy turn into a reminder to thank the Lord for what he's done for you and that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is not the believer's reality. Paul tells us what is in Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who are already righteous, have mastered not sinning, who never fail, who manage to walk perfectly from the time they give their lives to the Lord? No, no, no. The believer's reality is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. Who believe. Would you underline that word believe on your outlines? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because the righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. I hope you're saying amen or thank you Jesus to that because you should be. Verse two in chapter eight, Paul said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, we used to be bound by this law of sin and death, just as we are bound by the law of gravity. We cannot escape it. We could not escape it. We were forced to abide by it at all times. It was our master. It ruled our lives. We could not escape it. But the law of sin and death has been defeated by a greater law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Just as gravity can be defeated by greater laws when we hop in an airplane, And things like thrust and wind resistance come into play. And we can overpower the law of gravity by greater laws. We're no longer bound to the law of sin and death because a greater law has come into play. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Paul keeps writing and he says, he, that's the father, condemned sin in the flesh, the flesh of Jesus, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by us, no, in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul is telling us, you gotta get this, he's saying you and I have been judged under the law. Do you realize that? And we were all found guilty under the law, and we all died under the law, except Jesus took our place through that whole process. The law has been fulfilled in each of our lives. It has been applied, judgment has been rendered, and appropriate punishment has been served, except Jesus stood in our place through all of that. The law didn't just magically disappear from our lives. It was fulfilled in our lives by Jesus. 
That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yote, that's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or one tittle, that's the smallest stroke of a pen in Hebrew grammar, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You see, God didn't deal with our sin by ignoring justice. He can't do that because he's perfectly just. God dealt with our sin justly, fully, completely. But Jesus took our place and experienced that justice on our behalf. Write this down. Jesus fulfilled the law in us by taking our place under the law. Jesus fulfilled the law in us by taking our place under the law. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When you place your hope and your focus on fleshly things, material things, you'll find it leads to death. To, to nothingness, to emptiness. When you place your hope on the things of the spirit, the things of the kingdom of God, you'll find life and you'll find peace. Most people place their hope and their focus on things of the flesh, on material things. If I can just get a bigger house, then I'll be happy. If I can just find the right person to spend my life with, then I'll be happy. If I can just get away from this person, then I'll be happy. If I could just lose 20 pounds, get that promotion, move to that city, save up enough money. And when they get it, they inevitably realize it's not what they hoped it would be. It doesn't fulfill, it doesn't satisfy. But they don't learn the lesson, no. People just go on to the next thing and say, oh, I know what my problem was. I also need to have this thing. And they just repeat that pattern over and over of placing their hope and focus on fleshly material things that lead to disappointment. If I could just, you know, Solomon had no such limits, no limits. He had access to everything and anything, money, fame, sex, power, intellect, parties, you name it. He had no limits. There was no next thing. And so Solomon tried everything. He was having lavish parties with flown in exotic animals, peacocks and monkeys and people from all over the world coming to him just to listen to him talk. He's indulging in everything that existed from a carnal perspective at that time. And there was no other thing for him to try. There was no next thing. And so after he tried it all, what was Solomon's conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's all meaningless. All material things are meaningless. The flesh, the material leads to death. It cannot satisfy. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Write this down. Material things cannot satisfy spiritual needs. I pray we all have learned this. Material things cannot satisfy spiritual needs. Verse 7. Because the carnal, the fleshly mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, underline this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's point here is that trying to fulfill the law in our own strength 
is a work of the flesh and no work of the flesh can please God. It only leads to death. Even if you think you're doing something good, if you're doing it in the flesh, at some point in there, you're doing it with the wrong motivations. And so it's not pleasing to the Lord. It's not good. You're doing it because it makes you feel like a good person, which is ultimately selfish. You'll be doing it to alleviate the feeling of guilt you have from doing something you know is wrong in another area of your life. You're doing it because you want other people to do the same thing for you. You're doing it to get attention and praise from other people or so that people won't think you're a bad person. Whatever it is, if you're doing it in the flesh, it won't please God because God is looking deep into our hearts, into the deepest motives of our soul. In contrast, when we surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we follow him, we can actually do things that are pleasing to God. We can actually do good in the sight of God. It's incredible. Now, how does this work? Well, those who belong to Jesus know that they've been made righteous by Jesus. They understand that they're not trying to earn God's favor or points with the big man upstairs by doing good deeds. Those who are led by the Spirit do good because they love God. They just love God and are responding to the fact that God loved them first. Verse 9 But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise God for that good news. The same God who gave us a new spirit has a plan to give us a new body. Right now we're living in lively new spirits that are trapped in dead bodies. That's the reality. But one day we're going to be living spirits in living bodies, spirits that are alive in bodies that are alive. I can't wait for that. Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We don't have to live by the flesh anymore. We're not indebted to the flesh anymore. And in every area of life that you choose to live in the flesh, you're going to experience death. In every area of life where you surrender to the spirit, which you can now choose to do, you're going to find life at work. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit, these are sons of God. Those who belong to Jesus seek to live by the spirit, not by the flesh. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul says, guys, listen, God did not free you from slavery to the law so that you could have that same type of slavery relationship with him. No, no, no. He put his spirit in you so that you could know him as your father. 
And the reason we seek to live by the Spirit is because we love our Heavenly Father, not because He's some sort of taskmaster or slave driver like the law was to us. No, no, no. He put His Spirit in us so that we would be motivated to live by our love for Him and to live by the Spirit rather than the letter of the law. Jesus has victory, and therefore, so do we. But just as Jesus is waiting on his victory party, we have to wait too. And we are going to be at war with our flesh until the moment we get rid of our flesh at the final trumpet when we meet Jesus in the clouds and we receive our resurrected bodies. And I want to encourage you to look forward to that moment. In 1 John 3, 2, John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That day's coming. That moment's coming. The difference the spirit makes now is that Jesus now has dominion over our spirit. We can now choose to live by the spirit moment by moment. We can choose to break with the spiritual equivalent of the law of gravity. It's now possible. Before Jesus set us free, we were in total slavery to the flesh. We had no choice but to obey it. While none of us does it perfectly, we can now choose to actually live and walk in the spirit. Let's choose to walk in the spirit. And when we fail, there's no condemnation. Because we are in Christ Jesus, covered by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I want to finish by reading to you from further down in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or COVID-19? In all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Jesus, there's no condemnation, And there is no separation in our past, in our present, or in our future. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promise and thank you for the assurance of your word. And thank you for the finality of the way that you speak of our salvation and our justification. You speak about things like being born again, about dying to the flesh. You speak about things with such glorious finality. And Father, we just ask that we would yield to your spirit moment to moment, day by day, and that you would help us to walk in the spirit. Jesus, help us. Holy Spirit, help us to listen to your leading. We know that you are faithful to guide us Help us to surrender 
to your leading and to follow you moment by moment. Lord, you said in your word as well that whatever we bind up in earth will be bound up in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so in Jesus' name, we just bind up any condemnation that is attempting to make its way into the life of any believer. Father, we bind it up in the name of Jesus and we say the truth that is not the believer's reality. The believer's reality, the fact of the matter is that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but because we believe in what you have done for us on our behalf. So in Jesus' name, we just bind up condemnation and we pray that you would give a revelation of your sonship, your daughtership to any believer who is wrestling with that right now. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now. Because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.